boxing, wrestling, mixed martial arts, athletes as cross-cultural icons, celebrities, and sex symbols. Are we watching ESPN? No, it's the Ancient Greek Olympics. Crazy territory stories, double crosses, and swerves. Hey folks, are you excited that we are back? Because I know I'm excited that we are back. My name is Nick, and I am one of the hosts of Pro Wrestling History Nerds. I'm a professional wrestling promoter. I am a professional wrestling booker. But more important for today, I am a professional wrestling historian. And I am here with the Wally West and my Barry Allen. It's Chago Bronson. How the hell are you, man? I am doing my best to cap and contain my excitement for this episode because it is about to be right down my alley, right down my wheelhouse, as they say, and I couldn't be happier for this deep dive discussion that we are about to get into today, old chap. But uh, other than that, I'm pretty cool, normal, you know. If you've never listened to this show before, what we do is we go into these crazy deep dives, as Chongo said, into the history of professional wrestling and sometimes things adjacent to professional wrestling because these crazy stories have overlaps with lots of different sports. You know, if we talk about fixing matches, or as we call it, Hippodrome! We could also be discussing the White Sox throwing the World Series. In a way, lots of things are pro wrestling without being pro wrestling. Sometimes martial arts is pro wrestling. Sometimes MMA is pro wrestling. Sometimes politics is pro wrestling. And today we are going to be talking about, we, you know, we go back in time. We, we get in our time machine and we travel back to the 50s, to the early 1900s, to the mid 1800s. We go all over the world. But today we are getting in our time machine and we are going way back to ancient Greece. We are going back to one of the cradles of civilization, one of the places, one of the concepts that Western civilization is built upon. What are we gonna be talking about today? We're gonna to be talking about the ancient Olympic games. The pantheon of athletic competition, the ethos and mythos of Herculean struggle, man versus man, the origin of sport. I mean, what else would you do? This is basically the pro wrestling equivalent of the TARDIS or Bill and Ted's phone booth. Without the ability to disturb the timeline, we are going back because we have the ability to go back all the way to the Olympic Games, Daddy. And I'm excited, brother. And you may be asking, hey, dorks, what does the Olympic Games have to do with pro wrestling? Because you're probably picturing togas and cleanliness and brotherhood and putting aside one's differences for the sake of amateur athletics, for the sake of amateur athletics, the glory of the gods, however you want to put it. I don't know. I didn't watch all of Xena Warrior Princess. But if you want to know what that has to do with pro wrestling, then strap the fuck in because that's what we're doing today. But before we do that, I just want to thank everybody who's been along for the ride so far, the people who are encouraging us, the people who tell us, good job, you two. I love what you're doing to all those people. Thank you. We love you. And if you listen to this show on iTunes, please leave us a five-star review. Please leave us a glorious comment. It's not so we feel cool about ourselves because we feel cool about ourselves already. It's about the algorithm. It's about taking advantage of how the internet works so more people will see it pop up as a suggestion and go, what are these maniacs doing? Who are these goofballs? I'll give them a chance just like you did once upon a time. And that's all we ask. Thank you so much. It's for my personal glorification on my end, but I appreciate all those, you know, algorithms and whatnot and internet dues. But the fact is, if you've listened to this show up until this point, then you get to claim you were here before it was cool unironically. And I tip my top hat to you, old chap. So now we get into our time machine. Now we pull our lever. Now we go back, way back way back. We're going back to ancient times. We are going back to ancient Greece, and we are going to explore the concepts, the history, the rules, the sports of the combat side of the Olympic Games. And here's a question that we need to ask ourselves out of the gate, because this is very early in sporting life, in sporting history. What makes something a combat sport? Rules, consent, objective victory, Gladiatory games were not sports. 
in our current thoughts because it was forced training with fencing was military training without competitive objectives at the time. They were not sports. So a sport has to be something where two men come together, 16 men come together in a tournament, however we want to put it, and there is an objective. Victory has to be defined. The men or women or boys, the competitors, have to be on board. They have to know the rules, accept the rules, accept the concept, accept the consequences, and move forward in competition. And why is it important to say that? Because this was a new concept for the most part in this time, in this area, because up until then, everything was war and murder. So this was the first time that people took those concepts, that training, what they learned in war and said, hey, let's do this for the glory of the gods, but in a way that we all get to go drink, I don't know, yay old beer, wine, vinegar. I don't know what people drank back then. I didn't research that part, but we party at the end and we're all still alive to do it the next weekend. Combat training and combat sports exist because without training and competition, warriors had no idea how they would operate in actual combat. If you've never trained a fight, you have no idea how you'll react or what you'll do in an actual fight. Chango, have you ever been in a fight? Yeah, I have. I've been punched in the face more times than I can count. I've lost more fights than I've won. And there is a visceral, instinctual competition when it comes to combat. And whether you talk about, you know, puppies or kitties sparring and, and rolling around in a safe way to establish dominance and hierarchy, all the way to grown professional fighters just working on their technique. There's a lot of nuance and variance in the level of violence that you impose on someone. And that really dictates whether it's competition or to the death. Because as we've discussed with legitimate wrestling competition, as well as mixed martial arts, boxing, kickboxing, different rules of boxing, you fight the way you train. So when you have these combat style arts and no way to train them, you don't know how your body, your brain is going to react until you're actually in that situation. Despite what Barstool Steve has to uh, say about things when he's watching a UFC pay-per-view at the local uh, sports bar. The guy who yells, oh, I'd put him in an arm bar and I'd, you know, fucking spin kick his dick or whatever. That's the guy who, uh, you know, when he grabs a guy in a real bar brawl, he just looks like a koala bear trying to climb another koala bear. You have to learn to fight a certain way to compete a certain way. And that's true across the spectrum, whether it's warfare, whether it's sports. And this is where that distinction was made. All Olympic games had a martial arts component, running fast, throwing a javelin or a discus, and especially boxing, wrestling, and pancreation are all components of combat training. In Egypt and Mesopotamia, we find depictions of wrestling and boxing that predate the Olympic Games by nearly 1,500 years, showing that there is nothing new under the sun and that Western Europe's lionization of Greco-Roman culture, not to be confused with modern Greco-Roman wrestling, which was invented by Italian and French folk wrestlers in the 1800s, provided their tradition with a timeless legitimacy and importance that resonates to this day. In his rhetorics, Aristotle tells us that a wrestler is he who can arrest and hold the other man tightly, a boxer is he who inflicts injuries with a blow, and he who fights with both of these methods is a pancreation athlete. What a deep understanding of combat essence in that analysis. And it's very interesting to me that all of these initial Olympic competitions derive from two basic instincts, fight or flight. They are either some derivative of combat or they are some derivative of running as fast as you can. And I think that that is a very interesting aspect of the, uh, the genesis of the true Olympic Games. And keep in mind, the Olympic Games, the Olympic ceremony sports existed to honor the gods. These were very religious people because though today we think of Zeus and uh, you know Hera and 
Aphrodite, Apollo, we think of all these gods as being kind of almost cartoonish Disney-esque characters because that is how pop culture represents them today. But to these people back in these days, they were as real as anything could be. So these were people literally fighting for the gods' honor and approval. So that is a very serious level of stakes to be playing with in any generation. Fighting for the favor of the gods. I can't imagine a more inspiring uh, motiv motivation, right? The reason you are there. You're not there for a paycheck. You're not there to test yourself or prove something to yourself. You are there to show your but your appreciation of your gods and to honor your gods, that is a, a really powerful aspect of the early Olympic games. And as organized and civilized as we think of these things being, they were still pretty rough around the edges. In ancient Greek games, there were no weight classes and were often referred to as the heavy games because the larger athlete tends to win the events. When skill is equal, always bet on the heavyweight. Yeah, I mean, the, at the end of the day, it's superior physics at the point of impact. And bigger, stronger, faster equals more dangerous. I think it's very interesting how that is kind of morphed and amalgamated from honoring the gods to honoring your country in the current Olympic Games. But it's about glory to the bigger, to the bigger thing, to the bigger idea, to the bigger aspect. And that's really interesting how that undertone has evolved into what we now have in the Olympics. And we'll hit that with the asterisk like we always do when talking about pro wrestling history and now ancient Olympic history, for the most part. We'll go call back to that here in a bit. But the stories get crazy. Like Ligdemus of Syracuse, who won the gold medal in Pancration in 648 BCE, was described as a giant. So like I said, these bigger men are the ones who tended to uh, go home with the laurels. Milo of Croton won six gold medals between 540 and 520 BCE, and legends claim he ate 20 pounds of meat a day and once carried a young bull around a stadium as a feat of strength, and then ate it over the course of a single day. Exaggeration? Almost certainly, but that's what pro wrestling is all about. In that pre-internet era, and this is definitely pre-internet era, you could make up whatever crazy fucking story to sell tickets that you wanted, and to a certain extent, who's gonna argue with it? Especially when you're talking about a guy that won six gold medals in 20 years, which is really hard to keep track of because the numbers go backwards. But yeah, with that level of dominance at that time, what wouldn't you believe about the guy? Yeah, I mean, these are the type of stories that martial arts frauds would tell about themselves in the 70s and 80s because they were trying to get on the cover of Black Belt magazine. These are the stories that promoters and writers tell about professional wrestlers because they're trying to build these men up to be bigger than actual men, bigger than human, greater than the average jerk walking around. They turn them into demigods. Back in those days, you would say he's a son of Zeus, he's, he's half God. Nowadays, you have to work a little bit harder because uh, we don't have that to fall back on anymore. But ancient Greece, the same as today, you wanna sell that pay-per-view, you wanna sell tickets, you want to sell the glory of the Olympics the same darn way, and that's through exaggeration and hyperbole. And I'm sure there was an, also an aspect of genuine marvel at this level of athletic output. At that time, you didn't have people training for sports competition. It was just what you were. So these guys, it was like they were built. They were created by their gods for this purpose. And you could totally see how that, that audience would buy that flavor. There are stories about Theogenes of Thasos, a gold medalist in both pancreation and boxing, who claimed he was so strong as a child that he stole a statue from a temple at the age of nine and carried it home. And speaking of statues, a statue of Theogenes was erected in Thasos after his death, but someone hated him so much that they attacked the statue to get revenge. The statue, perhaps in self-defense, fell on him and killed him. The statue was put on trial for murder and was thrown into the ocean as a punishment. It was recovered because an oracle claimed that a curse would be put upon the city if it were not restored. Later, the statue became the focal point of a hero cult that 
worshipped Theogenes. And for fuck's sake, if that's not pro wrestling, I don't know what is. That's social progress, man. The fact is, a witch overturned a court decision and got the statue removed from the ocean to to prevent this horrible curse that would to befall the people. And that's just beautiful in and of itself, let alone the fact that the statue was put on trial. Did it like fall over and give him the elbow drop? I mean, did he do anything other than just stand there and get run into? That's amazing to me. Yeah, this this could very well have been a Undertaker storyline back in the late. Totally. And it's understandable that they became legends because the ancient Olympic Games were brutal. They took place in the hot Mediterranean summer and there were no rounds. And the only time limit was nightfall. There are stories of athletes succumbing to heat stroke rather than giving up a match. For anyone who has competed in legitimate competition, think of this being the worst nightmare of your possible imaginations. This is a situation where you have to go out and give it all at the highest level against the greatest competition in all the land with nothing but time and the sun beating your ass from overhead until somebody wins or the sun goes down. Think about wrestling. You know, we tell these stories of these old Greco-Roman wrestling matches where dudes would wrestle for four or five hours. They were still indoors at night. It was probably hot as hell, but it was indoors at night. These guys are in the Mediterranean, hot sun beating down on them, wrestling for hours, potentially. Imagine attempting to sprint a mile in that climate and then that level of fatigue trying to defend in a fight against one of the greatest fighters of that time and space. That's what you're talking about when you talk about competing for that long, no rounds. You are taking the human body past the capabilities that it was built for. And it is, to say that that's grueling is an understatement. That is a life changing. Your body will not be the same after going through a competition like that. And granted, Greek culture at that time leaned on concepts of beauty and being a physical specimen, and that bled into this as athletes were often praised for being physically attractive. You know, it's kind of like uh, wrestling today. You put the prettiest face on the poster or the best set of abs on the uh, on the ads. Sell, sex sells. It's what it comes down to. Be it you know 300 BC, be it 2021, sex sells tickets. So sexy people, they're going to draw a crowd. They're going to draw that crossover crowd maybe of women who just want to see some hot bots and they're going to put butts in seats because that's what it's all about. Especially when you've got them billed as a demigod, old chap. If you're going to if you're going to play the demigod role, you better look the part and not just have the skills. You better exude the godlike star power it takes to be immortalized in that way. So these athletes were praised for being handsome and sexy mostly with wrestlers and pancreationists, since boxing will completely fuck up your face, especially in these days when it was just a thin piece of leather over the knuckles. We're talking possibly worse than bare knuckle. Yeah, that's almost worse. Because we don't have the padding of a boxing glove or even like the you know seven ounce uh, you know type gloves. We're talking bare knuckle, but with just enough padding to keep your, uh, your knuckles from busting if you hit somebody real fucking hard. Yeah, in that way, it is absolutely worse because at least when you are throwing punches bare knuckle. You have to be conscientious of throwing an ill-advised punch that could break your hand. When you have just enough covering where it doesn't dissipate the force of the blow, but it just makes throwing wild punches safer, you end up with a lot more crazy fights and a lot more damage potentially be done because people can just wing them with no consequences. And a lot of things we know today come from this concept because especially a beauty-obsessed culture like ancient Greece, we do have that unfortunate idea that beautiful is good and ugly is bad. So even if you win the games and go home a hero, you still want to be pretty good looking so you can still cash in on all that and not be suspected of treachery due to your ugliness. And that's why they were the ones who invented ear covers to avoid cauliflower ear, and using oils to protect the skin from cuts and abrasions, kind of like how Vaseline is used in boxing, kickboxing, MMA today. 
This kept the wrestlers and pancreationists able to be sex symbols as well as athletes, except in Sparta who thought a mangled face was a status symbol for most fighters. Well, as someone whose face looks like a weathered battle axe, I definitely appreciate all the things that they developed to help minimize that. Cause I can't imagine how much worse I would look without Vaseline, without, you know, your headgear in wrestling in high school and college. I would have complete cauliflower face at this point. And most men in most cities had basic training because combat arts were a large part of military training, which was most often required of all citizens. The Olympic level trainers, for those who wanted to go on to competition, were often very expensive with expensive diets of mostly meat to go with it. So they needed to be either from a well-to-do family or have a well-to-do sponsor backing them. At competitions, athletes had to vow to have been properly trained and weirdly to have never killed anyone. I assume murder was considered unsportsmanlike. Tournaments could last weeks with matches made each round by blind draws from an urn after a religious ritual in the name of Zeus. I do like that they had to make a vow to have been well-trained, which is better than most indie wrestling shows are doing things today. Yeah, I, I wish we would reenact that policy and bring that back from the Olympic Games. It, it might improve things around here a bit. The matches could literally take all day, having no time limits. And if the finals went on too long, the wreath would be declared sacred and awarded to a god instead, most likely Zeus. So nobody was going to be stalling for a win in these days. Oh, and did I mention that they did this naked? Uh, no, you didn't, but I'm really happy you said so because I was visualizing everyone naked. I actually won a Pro Wrestler of the Year trophy that had that like statue where he's got the arm lock and they're both naked. And I was like, I wonder if he was really naked. But now I know. Now he I know. was definitely naked. So let's talk a little bit about wrestling. Wrestling predates ancient Greek culture and most likely predates culture in general. The tradition of grappling goes back to mythical characters like Gilgamesh, the Sumerian king Shulgi, and the Hebrew patriarch Jacob all have a crazy match in their legends. However, the Greek tradition made wrestling part of its cultural legacy by making a standard where a truly sophisticated and educated man would practice and enjoy wrestling. It wasn't just two men grappling in a, a field somewhere. This was almost a gentlemanly, a civilized, and an educated art. It's kind of like how we refer to boxing as the sweet science. They took a scientific approach to grappling. And it is so necessary for the growth of the art and the sport and the competition to what we know now, because before that, really the only differentiator was, am I grabbing you and, and pulling and tugging, or am I striking you? with blows and that was really all that, that was differentiated and they took this aspect the more civilized aspect without the strikes and they broke it down and they reverse engineered it and they said what makes this work the leverage the mechanisms the the lever the fulcrum and they they created wrestling and it is one of the most beautiful things that has ever been created as an art and a sport out of our natural just evolutionary selves man they took violence and made it a gentleman's game and gentle it was not wrestling was the first non-foot race sport added to the olympic games matches were contested in a three out of five falls format that may sound familiar and a lot of that comes from European athletes, scholars, just culture in general, calling back to ancient Greece, kind of a neoclassical idea that became popular time and time again, including in the 1800s when Greco-Roman wrestling became popular. And taking a third fall culturally became a metaphor, the standard way to express defeat in anything. From the writings of Plato and Aristophanes to Seneca to Galen in the Roman era, much like a 20th century writer might use a boxing metaphor, to say, I took the third fall is just a way of saying, I lost. Three strikes, you're out is another example of that played out in our modern vernacular. I think it also speaks to their understanding of combat. The Blitzkrieg was uh, a combative tactic that was utilized when you had inferior forces, and it relied on an early offensive to disrupt 
the statistical probability of the greater force winning over time. Basically, if you have a smaller, weaker, less likely to win force, the earlier you can get them to put all the chips on the table and the less opportunities they have to beat you, the better your chance of success. That's why more upsets happen in football playoffs where there's one game versus the NBA where it's three out of five or four out of seven. The more times the competition is enacted, the higher statistics will show that the better person will win. And the fact that they had three out of five shows that they really wanted to see who was the best, not a one lucky fall. They established a system to truly determine who was the better fighter. And metaphor-wise, on the other side of things, the undefeated wrestler poetically could be described as, he did not get dust on his shoulder because he was never pinned. And keep in mind that the shoulders just had to touch the ground, not a prolonged counted pin in the modern sense. The rules of the matches were closer to catch wrestling than to modern Greco-Roman wrestling or folk wrestling. There was controversy over whether leg trips or double single leg takedowns were allowed, but like with most of these rules, they're reconstructed from records and ancient illustrations, which often show leg trips from the tie-up. And this is the same story with submission holds, because keep in mind, there's no ancient Greek rule book really lying around. A lot of this has to be reconstructed from illustrations. So if you hear a description of a choke and you see a picture of a choke, you have to assume a choke was legal. In the art of grappling at that time, they may have been discovering aspects of the submission game for the first time. He ends up with the, the, you know, think about a hold like the full Nelson, how revolutionary that would be in a grappling competition with people that didn't understand the finer points of grappling the way we do today. I could totally foresee an, a situation where someone was put in a grappling hold or a position that they would be willing to give up the match because otherwise they're gonna break even though they couldn't put their shoulders on the mat. And like I said, judging from descriptions, illustrations, reconstructions, the strangleholds, the chokes, they were all legal as were submission holds depending on the era. And small joint manipulation was allowed, which real, really sucks sometimes, with one fifth century BCE wrestler, Leontiscus, winning at Olympia by breaking all of his opponents fingers <laughs> yeah yeah that's a dick move and if you don't know what small joint manipulation is it means your phalanges your digits your fingers and toes and these guys are also naked man i don't want to know if there were any you know kibosh submission attempts like that's a small digit i don't want phalanges yeah there is an illusion in sports of the sportsmanship and nobility of the ancient olympics but the competition was fierce bitter and violent no matter what it was there were attempts to rein it in, such as in late 6th century BCE, it was a proclamation against finger breaking, whether that was made out of a spirit of sportsmanship or if just too many competitions ended with broken fingers, no living man can say, but there was often outcry for a more pure grappling style, free of anything resembling a dirty trick. We still hear that to this day. Yeah, and it's funny how those things kind of the mutually agreed upon off-limits things such as a shot to the to the groin small digit manipulation it's i'm sure they got to the point where everyone had had their fingers either just completely ripped apart or attempted to do so and they were like all right listen we've all now got just we can't even make a fist anymore let's just agree to not go after the digits and it makes me wonder was it done for the sake of the athletes or the spectators because a guy giving up because in a tie-up somebody broke his fingers is very anticlimactic, you know, very boring in a way. It's like a tie-up, what happened? The guy's screaming, oh, he got his fingers broken. It wasn't a big fall. It wasn't the big chokehold. Yeah. It wasn't a shoulder lock or something spectacular, something that really shows what an athlete a man was. This is a very heel move, if you will, in wrestling parlance. And no one wants to see the lion tap out to the thorn in his paw. And that's essentially what this is. And I don't blame guys for going after the fingers because frankly, that's a really effective way to put somebody bigger and stronger down. So people were wanting a cleaner sport, maybe for sportsmanship, maybe for putting butts in seats, either way. Plato, for example, wrote in law, but the matters of correct wrestling, the freeing up of necks and hands and sides, exercising with eager rivalry and under established rules with beautiful body strength for the sake of health, 
these things being useful for all things are not to be neglected. So this is a, you know, one of the greatest philosophers of his day, adding a sense of meaning of philosophical sportsmanship to what he wanted to see in wrestling as opposed to eye pokes and finger breaks. Because he understood the deeper intrinsic meaning of the competition, of the, the heart of the sport, the essence of what is being accomplished in competition. You are taking savage man and you are civilizing him. And then you are, you know, you are integrating the shadow. And I'm sure that that had a deep uh, attraction to these philosophers at that time. And that's why we see so many wrestling uh, related uh, correspondence from Plato and, and the philosophers of his time. And this is gonna sound fucking exhausting. So we've already talked about how physically grueling this could be. No weight classes, no time limits, no rounds. It's literally go until somebody wins or the sun goes down. And that was very frowned upon. Like that was, that was not a, nobody was stalling out and expected yeah. to be treated well in society. But how's this sport being even worse? In addition to being an individual sport, wrestling was also the final competition in the ancient pentathlon. After short races, discus, javelin, and a long jump, you'd then have to fucking wrestle someone. So is it the same guys or do they have like a sprint team? Because if they have a sprint team, that totally sucks for that guy. Cause here he thought he got out of having to get these hands and he still got to wrestle. That is, but it speaks to the, the level of importance they put on it as a category of competition in sport. And these are all martial practices, running, discus, javelin, long jump, and then wrestling is very much like a uh, like a military training yeah. show-off sport because these are all things you had to do the same day at the same hour in combat at that time. So this was all about martial prowess. And then it's just bananas to think about doing all those things and then having to wrestle someone without a goddamn time limit. And also, did I mention they had to do that naked? Yeah, that's the best part. I mean, did they have, so did they have to race naked too? Oh yeah, I mean, all these games were done naked. And I'm just thinking, we're gonna get a little graphic here for a second. Uh, anybody who is a, uh, a penis owner understands like how that reacts in the sun. So you're like, you're shrunken in and your balls are down to your knees. This is a horrible way to have to do anything, let alone wrestle somebody. Yes, yeah, sprinting when you're going commando is definitely a no-no, old chap. They That is a... Uh war of attrition in and of itself, man. And now we move on to boxing. Boxing has existed in one way or another since humans realized that you can make a fist and smash someone in the nose with it. Though it has a long and documented history and mythology, it didn't become an Olympic sport until 688 BCE with rules that are often contested by historians. Gouging the eyes was illegal, as it was in both wrestling and pancreation. Fighters wore leather thongs wrapped around the hands to protect their knuckles, but was clinching and holding legal? If so, to what degree? You know, this is very far removed from what we think of as boxing today. Very similar to how we think of even 150 years ago with London prize rules being so different from contemporary boxing. All we know is they wore just a thin strap of leather across their knuckles to keep them from splitting, and they punched each other naked. So. What the rules were, who the fuck knows. Most likely it was just fists until somebody was on the ground in the hot summer sun. And that actually makes sense because they had sort of derived the grappling variant of combative competition and now they wanted to see what you could do with them hands. And boxers trained much the same way they do today, wearing heavier gloves for sparring and training, working punching bags, etc., and sometimes trained for more than a year before an Olympic tournament. The tactics were as varied as the fighters themselves. Diageras of Rhodes was one of the most famous boxers of his time. He was the champion at the 79th Olympiad in 464 BCE and was said to never duck or slip punches. Instead, he took everything his opponents had to offer and kept coming forward. Not good for the face, not good for the brain, but fucking terrifying if you do if somebody's doing that and you can't put them down. And that will put asses in seats, man, especially if he's naked. Conversely, there are stories of 
Melanchomus of Caria, who won in 45 CE by simply avoiding everything his opponents threw at him until they were exhausted, makes me think about that Simpsons episode where Homer's a boxer and couldn't punch worth a damn, but just kind of waited for everybody to punch themselves out and then nudged them down. So you would have the brawlers, the Vanderlei Silva types, and you would have the avoiders, the Floyd Mayweather Jr. types, thousands of years ago. Yeah, I think, and it, it's very interesting because you can imagine the the audience at the time and how it expanded the knowledge of what could be done in combat. I would, what was popped into my head when you were explaining that was the first time Anderson Silva landed that teep, that push kick to drop Vitor Belfort. And it was like, oh, this does actually work in the highest levels of combative competition. And I can only imagine how that audience went from seeing somebody that just ate every punch that came at him to a guy who utilized head movement and counter fighting and timing and how that just probably blew everyone's mind, man. And boxing was a dangerous sport. It still is, of course. Cleomedes of Estapalia was a successful fighter in the early 5th century BCE and won the Olympic Games in either 496 or in 492 BCE. However, Cleomenes killed his final opponent, Ecos, using illegal tactics, and the judges stripped him of his Olympic victory. So uh, you don't want to be that guy, I guess. Yeah, I want to know what was the illegal tactic. I mean, did he choke him? Did he kill him with strikes? There's only so many ways in a fight that you could do that much damage, I I'm I would wanna know what it was that he did to put somebody away. I'm gonna guess either a Hadouken or a Tiger uppercut. Oh yes, a Tiger uppercut, classic maneuver. Boxing, much like wrestling, faded from competitions after the sixth century CE, when the last vestiges of Greek tradition began to fade from the former territories of the Western Roman Empire. Though contested fistfights were certainly held worldwide in one guise or another, the concept of boxing didn't reemerge as a culturally important sport until the 6th century in England. At that time, though, they weren't naked. Well, that's the beginning of the demise of the business. That's, it's all downhill from there. I, so, question on that. Was it called boxing at that time during the Olympics? There is a Greek word for it. I cannot begin to pronounce it, but that's you know, the English word we have for it. That's how we reference it today because yeah. it is essentially the same sport with some nuance and minor changes. And now that we have established wrestling, we have talked about boxing. Now we're on to the crazy story of the sport of pancreation. In his rhetorics, Aristotle tells us that a wrestler is he who can arrest and hold the other man tightly, a boxer is he who inflicts injuries with blows, and he who fights with both these methods is a pancreation athlete. If you have watched the UFC, you're going to kind of understand what this sport was because that's what it was in a sense. The rules, knockout, submission, tapping out, or raising a single finger to say you give up. No eye gouging or biting. Groin strikes were often illegal, but that was up to the judges, who were not there to score the matches like a modern fight, but to ensure the rules are obeyed and would order the ref to beat a fighter with a stick should they step out of line. <laughs> That's definitely a rule that needs to be reenacted nowadays. There's also conjecture based on illustrations that strikes to the back of the head and neck were not allowed but no one is certain on that one. It's the rules of the early UFC with the blending of skills in modern MMA, because the comparison to MMA is of course natural, but it had the rules of those early UFCs, bare knuckle, no eye gouging, no biting, everything else is fair game, no time limits. But at that juncture in modern MMA history, it wasn't MMA. Yeah, it was style versus style, a tournament to determine which martial art was dominant. And so, yeah, it was it was no holds barred, NHB, so how most people refer to it at that time. But at that time, you would have jujitsu men, you would have wrestlers, you would have boxers, you would have a Taekwondo guy show up for some reason, because I assume he just got lost and uh, didn't feel the need to explain himself properly. Nobody had well-rounded skills under those rule sets, but back in ancient Greece, they did, and that's how they competed. It's so interesting how what is old is new again. 1993 was the first UFC and it was so 
revolutionary in our culture at that time. The, the idea of style versus style, which morphed into combining styles, which morphed into MMA as we know it now. And they were doing this thousands of years ago. And even some of the strategies and techniques are gonna sound familiar. The stance, judging from ancient illustrations, looks like a mix of a traditional Muay Thai stance, hips forward, most of the weight on the back leg, hands up and extended with a little bit of a crouch. In ancient art, we see techniques that would look familiar. Again, arm bars, kicks, clinches, and throws. The human body is designed to move in only so many ways. So the, the capability of physical expression of combat, punches, kicks, takedowns, submissions, chokes, there's only so many ways that the body can combine to do those things. So it's, it's not surprising that the stance and all these aspects are very similar to what we see today. Pancration was added to the Olympic Games in 648 BCE, but there is evidence that it existed outside Olympic competition as much as 1,000 years earlier. The first Olympic champion was the previously mentioned Ligdemus of Syracuse, and in 200 BCE, a boys' division was added. That's right, they let the kids have MMA too. Yeah, that, that sounds about par for the course with that culture, but it's really, it's really unfortunate because combat at that age i i mean it happens and i there is a a a valid um intrinsic benefit that comes with martial arts training when you're young but to compete and to be put out there in sort of like a disney channel lindsay lohan kind of way but for violence and and combat that just is not the way you want to uh grow your fighters I, I, it makes me think about, it was back in the early days of mixed martial arts where the athletic commissions gave zero shits. It was very unregulated. It was an event here in Denver where in the MMA division, there was a fight between a 14-year-old kickboxer and a 16-year-old jujitsu blue belt. And the blue belt just double A takedown, knee on stomach, and just landed huge punches from the top. The ref stops it. And the 14-year-old kickboxer was just bawling his eyes out. And I still think about that and feel terrible because I don't necessarily think that fight should have happened. Yeah, and it, like in my trips to Thailand, I've seen the uh, element of children fighting. In Thailand, a lot of the Thai fighters have 90, 100 fights before they're adults because the physics don't do enough damage to injure them the way an adult striking you would so the kids can fight week after week after week. And it's, it's, really, it's a really hard thing to watch, man. But despite the age of the combatants, from art we can see pancreation containing many techniques we know so well. Front kicks to the body, either offensively or used as a Muay Thai style teep front kick to stop their momentum. Stomp kicks to the knee, leg kicks, punches, throws, knees and elbows, takedowns and submission holds. I've even seen artists depicting the dreaded uppercut to the balls, which I assume was followed by a painting of a dog covering its eyes with a paw and emitting a sympathetic groan. Yeah, that's no fun. Now, when they when they set out these rules, why did they not eliminate the groin shot? I'm surprised by that, but maybe it's because they're still naked. Definitely naked. So that would be a quite the, you know, it's like you always think about that splits uppercut to the balls in blood sport. Now imagine that when you actually see the fist crush the sack. I, I don't necessarily want to think about that too much or ever see it, but if that's on display, holy shit, what a, what a, what a finisher. Yeah, a dick kick is definitely a, a fight ending technique. So if you ever want to, if that's a legal shot, it, it would be a very different game. While many of the techniques are similar, you wouldn't expect the fights to look like modern MMA. Many punches were done with lunging footwork, using the body mechanics of a spear thrust. For a few centuries, punches were often thrown with thumbs hooked out to catch the throat. Footwork would be completely different because they trained and competed on dug up dirt and sand instead of canvas. Again, you fight the way you train. Yeah, and that's those little things make a big difference because when you're used to planting your feet on solid ground versus fighting in the sand, it's a completely different animal. 
Much like the legends of fighters being giants and descended from Hercules, we also find the typical pre-internet bullshit stories of impossible techniques. Like when Krugus killed Demoxenes with a finger jab through the throat. No records let us know if it was the five fingers of death music playing when it happened. Finger poke of doom, eh? No angle is new in the business, as they say. Although a properly placed shot with, you know, stiff, like, finger jab technique to the trachea, I could see that potentially putting somebody away. But you're talking about a really, really uh, low percentage strike. And much like with modern wrestling, we don't see a guard game in Pancreation, not because a pin meant anything, but because most Pancreation fighters were training in wrestling as well and did everything they could to not be on their backs. That doesn't mean that the position was unknown. In an art relief from Tomb 15 at Beni Hassan, Egypt, there's a 4,000-year-old image of a wrestler in the guard position, along with an image of a reverse triangle choke from the back. Can you imagine the third leg triangle in ancient Pancrase? Because he's got you in that triangle and then all of a sudden that third leg is just slapping you in the face. You give up, you give up, you give up. <laughs> Then leg locks were common, with variants on the straight ankle lock, knee bar, gotch toe hold, and heel hook, and there's a fantastic series of carvings of a match between a man and a centaur that shows a centaur catching the man with a heel hook. Don't know how he set it up, but apparently he caught it. I'm surprised you didn't say they were focused on the Achilles lock. Oh, I see what you did there. Yes, yes, ancient lore. And again, training was long and expensive, with many fighters training for a year to prepare for Olympia. Again, matches were made by blind draw from an urn in honor of Zeus. And while we find pancreation in Greek legends, such as Theseus using it to defeat a Minotaur, actual Greek champions certainly found their way into legend, such as Erhichion of Figalia, who was the winner of the pancreation at the 52nd and 53rd Olympiad, 572 BCE and 568 BCE, respectively, who was caught in a rear naked choke on the ground and managed to secure a toehold on his opponent, who signaled his surrender even though Arichion died from the choke. His corpse was declared the winner, and a statue of his likeness was erected in his home city. That's why you never cross your feet when you have the back mount, old chap. Don't expose the ankle. Cletomachos of Thebes, who won the pancreation and boxing at Olympia, and all three combat sports at other ceremonial sporting events. He was famous for abstaining from sex while training and would avert his eyes even if he saw dogs coupling, as they say. Yeah, that's early CM Punk uh, straight edge gimmick, eh? He, he abstained and, and sat, he took all that pent up aggression and won the gold in all three combative aspects of Olympic sports, that's pretty impressive. And I'm sure that gave rise to the to the misnomer that you need to abstain from sex when you're training for a fight. Cause that's bullshit. Oh, absolutely. Well, that's from like those days where they're like, oh, don't have sex for a month and only eat red meat. It's like, yeah, I wanna go in like only thinking about not fighting and with a, uh, a dump that I cannot pass through my butthole. Polydamus of Thessalia won the pancreation at the 93rd Olympiad in 408-408 BCE and was supposedly strong enough to stop a chariot with his hands. He supposedly died while holding up the ceiling of a cave during a cave-in so his friends could escape before he was crushed to death. Or the story surrounding Diosippus, who supposedly won the pancreation at Olympia in 336 BCE by default when nobody else wanted to fight him. Again, the legends grow around the fighter, turn them into legends, legends turn into statues, make your city look a lot cooler than it was. Yeah, I'm sure the real story was like everyone in the competition got dysentery or something like that from the bad pre you know, primitive understanding of medical stuff or some other reason that actually made sense why he wasn't able to get any competition, but it's a good story. And speaking of stories, this one is my favorite. According to Diodorus Siculus, an ancient Sicilian historian, Diosippus attended a banquet held by Alexander the Great, where a Macedonian soldier named Corrigus got drunk and insulted him. A duel was quickly challenged, and when they met, Diosippus was nude, oiled, and carrying a club against Corrigus, who was in full battle armor. Corrigus threw his spear. 
which Diasopus dodged. Diasopus charged and smashed Corrigus's pike with his club. Before Corrigus could draw his sword, Diasopus took him to the ground and was about to finish his opponent off for good when Alexander stopped the fight. The Macedonian soldiers were embarrassed and enraged since one of their own was defeated by an outsider right in front of the recently captured Persian hostages. They put a gold cup under his pillow while he slept and accused him of stealing it. The dishonor was so great that he wrote a letter to Alexander and then killed himself. Yeah, how bad does that suck to be the guy that's like, no, big homie, I got this light work for you. Let me take care of this problem. And then you get your ass handed to you by a naked, club-wielding, oiled-up maniac. And how many of these stories are true and how much are exaggerations and outright fabrications? Who can say? But it shows there is always a difference between a fight and the story of a fight and how the human mind makes a pattern and narrative with fights and in the end turns it all into pro wrestling. The lore, the legendary aspect of professional wrestling, this is where it came from. Larger than life, heroes, demigods, superstars, champions, the aspect of ascending to a higher level through competition. All of these aspects came from the Olympic Games. And then one last thing we really need to do is try to understand the ancient Olympics through the lens of the 19th century. Sportsmanship, honor, fair competition, and pure amateur love of the game. These are the things we think of when we hear the word Olympics, right? Right? Well, today we think of big money sponsors, gold medalists getting their faces splashed on the boxes of Wheaties, car commercials, professional athletes now getting to play against their vastly overwhelmed contemporaries. Well, we assume the ancient Greeks would throw a fit over it, but they wouldn't. Sportsmanship, fair play, etc., were not concepts that existed in Hellenistic sporting world. The Olympians were not amateurs, as we think of the term today. They required big money sponsors to train if they did not come from a rich family. And when they came home a winner, keep in mind there was no silver or bronze medals for runners up, they would make a fortune. Some city-states paid an Olympic champion 100 times what a soldier would make every year. They would be gifted everything from fine clothes to lifetime tax exemptions to free meals for life, which was a much bigger deal in those days. There were attempts to use magic spells against opponents. Athletes tried to cheat with magic potions. Fights were thrown, opponents bribed. In 388 BCE, boxer Eupolis of Thessaly was caught bribing three opponents. Talented fighters could find themselves in massive debt to their trainers if they didn't have the funds or sponsors to cover the training. So a trainer could make a front runner take a die for the sake of betting or to simply make a different, more favored athlete shine. I'm thinking a lot of this sounds familiar to our listeners. Yes, uh, what, there's a word for, for that sort of thing. I don't what, what would, what would you call that? This might be a hippodrome. Oh yes, that's it. So where do these absolute bullshit ideas come from? Well, a lot of it comes from the sort of people who relaunched the idea of Olympic Games in 1896, like Charles-Pierre de Frédé, Baron de Coubertin, the father of the modern Olympics. He was a French aristocrat who was friends with mostly other European aristocrats, and they painted their own morality and lofty post-enlightenment ideals onto not just the Olympic Games, but ancient Greek culture as a whole. They wanted amateur competition because the upper class mostly lived on inherited money and lands and had plenty of free time to master gentlemanly sports. At the same time, the label of amateur kept out the undesirables, the peasants, the rabbles, the poor, the working men. By claiming that a laborer was somehow a professional, even if he were a blacksmith or a factory worker and not a boxer or a sprinter, it ensures that the superior class would never be defeated by the working class. Yeah, it's it's a, a, a early example of home cooking, booking and politicking to keep your spot. They had the wealth and the affluence to not have to work so they could apply that amateur status. And it's it's really it's really too bad. It's an early example of using that privilege to keep the true competition uh, at bay. So whatever happened to these events? The Romans adopted the sports as they absorbed Greek culture, spelling it pancratium in Latin. 
There are records of Olympic Games in formerly Hellenistic Middle Eastern cities as late as the 6th century Common Era. The Greek Byzantine Empire had mostly discarded them because A, it was no longer made up of thousands of city-states ready to fight each other, and B, it was seen as a pagan ritual event that no longer had a place in Christian Europe. The Byzantine Emperor Theodosius I outlawed Pancration, along with all holdover gladiator games from ancient Rome in 393 CE, ending the more than 1400 years of Pancration competition in the Hellenistic world. Yeah, that's crazy, man. The arts became lost because without the competition and a set of rules, there was no purpose in training for them. The rules of Greek wrestling, boxing, and pancreation faded into history. The techniques were absorbed into folk wrestling, and it wasn't until the 16th century in England that we saw boxing make its comeback. In 19th century France and Italy, we saw Greco-Roman wrestling reignite grappling as a sophisticated mainstream sport. I wonder what the ability to create that lure would have been without the backstory of the Olympics, of Greco-Roman wrestling, the, the, the ability to use that to, to basically create something new in the, 19, in the 19th century. I wonder what they could have done without the lure of the, the Olympics. Well, you look at wrestling, at that time was mostly a folk art. Folk art is usually for the peasants. So the aristocrats really had no interest in these things until Greco-Roman wrestling kind of reattached itself to a neoclassical worldview. So now it became the gentlemanly thing to train in when before that was something the rabble does and you just shot them if they tried to do it to you. So it was punk rock and then a bunch of hipsters got involved. That is a great way to put it. And modern pancreation emerged in the 1970s as an invention by Greek martial artist Jim Arvantis, who sought to bring back the cultural heritage of Greek martial arts. Granted, his background was in several Asian martial arts, which he synthesized into a system that looks a lot like modern MMA. When the UFC came along in the 90s, one of the first things they did was to market it as a callback to the ancient Olympic Games. Why? Because once again, nothing legitimizes something like tying it to the ancient Greek world. Western civilization, for better or for worse, is built on the concepts of neoclassical values. Others, like Matt Hume's AMC Pancration, use the concept to promote the modern MMA concepts and style, and the Japanese wrestling hybrid event Pancrase draws its name and inspiration from its ancient Greek forebear. And was one of the modern, groundbreaking, trailblazing MMA-style presentations that we think of now. You think of, like, the modern pioneers of MMA. Pancrase was one of those things that, that created what we think of now. And in retrospect, there are plenty of conspiracies about how Asian martial arts have their roots in ancient Greece, often with Alexander the Great's armies bringing Pancration to the east via India as it was conquered, as though nobody out there had figured out how to throw a punch or choke someone. Ultimately, humans love to fight, and there's only so many ways to do it. An elbow to the face hurts, and bending the knee the wrong way will end a fight one way or another. It always makes me think of something Bruce Lee said. Before I learned the art, a punch was just a punch, and a kick just a kick. After I learned the art, a punch was no longer a punch, a kick no longer a kick. Now that I understand the art, a punch is just a punch, and a kick is just a kick. As we talk about time and time again, cultural, worldwide, wrestling, boxing, martial arts, the human body only does things a certain number of ways, so it's gonna be universal. Everybody's gonna figure it out one way or another. And to me, that's true from Athens to Tokyo to Hong Kong to Madison Square Garden to the UFC to WrestleMania. But until the sun burns out, those great games will echo throughout history. They set the standard for athletic and combative competition for sportsmanship and for fighting for a bigger cause, for a bigger ideal. And everything that we think of now in modern sport is a derivative of these original Olympics. And that's where we're gonna leave things for today. We have gone back and really looked at the root of 
organized grappling and fighting in all its glory, in all its seediness, in all its danger and excitement. And this is what lays the groundwork for everything that we have today, whether it's boxing or wrestling or mixed martial arts or pro wrestling or judo or whatever. It's as ancient as humankind. And I'm so glad we got to talk about this today. Yes, this is such a treat. Thank you for taking the, the journey with us back in time in our pro wrestling time machine. And I have such an appreciation for the art of Pancrase, especially done naked, man. That is really, really tough thing to imagine doing, bro. I can't wrap my brain around that. But one thing I can wrap my brain around is my gratitude to everyone who listens to this show. And if you haven't already, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, check out our Instagram. I'm going to find those uh, photos of the centaur heel hooking a dude. You'll get to see them sometime soon. But until then, I'm Nick Gossard. That's Chongo Bronson. Good night, everyone. We'll talk to you next time. Cut print martini.